שבת הדלה היה לשבע ברחוב. שלום, שלום, שוטרים are called uh, officers. They should be appointed in all of your cities. בכל שעריך, אשר השם אלוהיך נותן לך לשבטיך, the cities of the, of the tribes, משפטו את העם משפצדק, and they will judge the people uh, in, a, in a righteous way. So Rashi says, שופטים ושוטרים, שופטים דיינים. Like we said, judges, haposim etadim, so they pass the judgment. The shoterim are the officers, harodin etam, so they have to impose authority on the people. <coughs> Basically, <coughs> the shoterim is the enforcement. Ahan mitzvatam, like we have in uh, this country. I mean, we used to have in this country law and order. First, you have to have the judge that passes the law. And then you need enforcement in order to um, to impose the law uh, upon the people. And she says, every city needs to have a court. To your tribes. You shall place uh, judges and officers in all of your cities that God has given your Uh, tribes and they will judge a righteous uh, uh, judgment um, and the Rashi comes and says from here we learn that we must appoint expert judges that will judge righteously we're not allowed to pervert justice we're not allowed to show uh, favoritism And the judge is not allowed to take bribery, obviously. The bribery blinds the eyes of the wise. And it makes righteous words crooked. She says that the judge is not allowed to be soft to one of the litigants and difficult to... Uh, to another one. The Pasuk says, uh, uh, the Pasuk says, uh, what's the Pasuk that says, one Pasuk says, Lo telech Rachil. Rachil, the rabbis learn in the Gemara in uh, Ketubot, uh, uh, they come along and they teach us there on Daf Memvav that Rachil, you should not be Rachli, you should not be soft To one litigant and difficult to the other. That already is showing favoritism. Especially if you make one stand and one sit. Automatically, the one that's getting the advantage uh, feels comfortable. Therefore, it's easy for him to talk. And the one that's getting intimidated, it's hard for him to say his claim. And therefore, his arguments become blocked. 
So therefore, if, if they both, uh, if one sits, they both sit. They both stand, they both stand. The judge has to be even keeled and even handed. Not allowed to take bribery even to judge righteously, which was even if the guy gives the bribe and says, I want you to judge the case in a righteous manner. The, bri the judge still cannot take the shohad. Once a person receives or accepts a bribe, it's impossible that she says for him to see the case straight. Automatically, his heart is going to be uh, tilted <clears throat> to the person that gave him the bribe. It's an impossibility. And um, words that normally would be justice become perverted as a result of the bribe. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdof which literally means righteousness, righteousness, you shall pursue. And that means, what does it mean righteousness, righteousness? That if you have a choice to go to a court, you should go to the court that is most qualified, the highest quality. It's like we would say, creme de la creme. We say, tzedek, tzedek. You should go to the court of justice, justice. Leman and the pasuk is coming and telling us that uh, in the merit of uh, appointing uh, decent judges, it's worthy to keep uh, the Jewish people alive and establish them and settle them in their land. That's what the pasuk says: "Leman in order that you shall live the ashera." Now the pasuk says you should not plant a uh, a tree that primarily is used to worship Avodah Zarah. That's a negative commitment, not only to worship the tree, but it's actually forbidden to, uh, to, to plant the tree. <clears throat> and as she comes and tells us, the Pasuk writes, You're not allowed to plant this tree next to the altar of God. Now, the truth of the matter is you're not allowed to plant it anywhere, but it comes to teach us that One's not allowed to build any structure or a house, any wooden structure on the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount must remain <clears throat> bare from any other structure except the Beit HaMikdash. Velo takim lecha matseva. Matseva is a, a pillar, a stone, lakriv aleha, to bring korbanot on it, even korbanot to God. We learned that already. You cannot bring korbanot sacrifices only in the temple. So you cannot make a personal, you know, altar. Finally, <laughs> you're not allowed to make a sacrifice to God. Short basay, an ox or a sheep, a that has a blemish. So we learned that animals that have blemishes are not fit. That's considered a it is a, an abomination to bring these uh, to bring these korbanot. Now, Rashi comes along and says, even if the korban is not blemished, but if a person commits the sin of uh, pigul, what is uh, the sin of pigul? So he has an improper uh, intention when he brings the korban. And let's say he verbally expresses it. Let's say he says, I'm slaughtering the korban with intention to eat it, to eat the meat past its time. 
you know, every kurman has a certain time limit how, how long you can eat the meat. So let's say a person has an intention to eat the meat past the time, but that already renders the kurman invalid, even though the kurman is perfectly whole, has no physical blemishes, but it's possible to blemish it through uh, the words or the intention of the uh, of the kohen itself. Now, uh, it does say over here, if you'll find uh, amongst you, uh, in your midst, in the land that Hashem gave you, Isho Isha, a man or a lady, that does bad in the eyes of God, that's referring to over here, uh, worshipping idolatry. They went and they worshipped other gods, they bowed to them, to the sun of the moon, to the celestial bodies, that I did not, that did not command to serve them. And it was told to you, and you will interrogate the witnesses, and we find out that actually, the witnesses are telling the truth, there was a person who worshipped Abu Dazaran, this abomination was done, you take the man or the lady, you take them, uh, they, 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 these people that served Abu Dazara, so there you go. The punishment is stoning. So the punishment of Abu Dazara is death by stoning, which is the most severe of the punishments. In Judaism, all you need is two or three witnesses in order to convict. Now the question obviously is, if two witnesses is enough, why does the Pasuk have to say three? I mean, you don't need three, two is enough, so why should the Pasuk say two or three? So that she comes along and says, <clears throat> to come and tell you that once a group comes, uh, they're considered one group, and therefore a group of two comes is considered one unit of testimony. A group of three comes, we consider it one unit, and there's uh, there's laws regarding if you want to disqualify them, so then you have to disqualify the entire unit. You don't, not only two out of the three, you have to disqualify all three. So it's coming to tell you not that you need three witnesses. Two is enough, but once they come as three, they're a unit, therefore the disqualification process has to be on the entire, entire unit. And then when it says you stone the person, it says, lo you cannot kill a person based on the testimony of one witness. Who throws the first stone? The witnesses themselves. And then, so the witnesses actually not only testify, but they actually have to execute. They throw the stone. And then after they throw the first stone, then everybody, everybody else uh, finishes the job. And we will eradicate and destroy the evil from our midst. Again, these are laws. We don't have these punishments anymore today of mitat bedin, but you see in the olden days, you know, under certain circumstances, these very, very severe punishments were given, and they were given in public in order that people will see it. And uh, obviously the greatest deterrent against evil is to see you know, these punishments. It wasn't done that often, the Gemara says, but the few oh, times yeah. that it was, clearly sends a people not to transgress. I will keep in mind that Abu Dazara is punished by death by stoning, and desecrating Shabbat is punishable death by. So it's tantamount to Abu Dazara. 
that just keeps us aware of how severe the laws of Shabbat are, that uh, the Hafez Haimites from the punishment, you see how severe the law is. And the fact that it uh, receives highest of punishments, that must mean that Shabbat is on the highest of mitzvot. That's why it says, whoever desecrates Shabbat, it's as if they worship uh, Abu Dazara. Anyway, that's the uh, short of it tonight. Wish all our members a, uh, a good week and a good elul. We should have a, I guess we can start mentioning it, a Shana Toba and Kitiba Toba. All our members are making a And we move to Perek Yudzayin, chapter 17, eight. Tonight's subject is talking about the High Court, which is called the Sanhedrin, it's at, its offices were in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and uh, the Torah is going to tell us now some of the functions of the High Court. So, let's say there's a mishpat, uh, a judgment, it's hidden, you need a, uh, you need a ruling. But she says the word uh, comes from the word Hafla'a, which means <clears throat> it's uh, it's nevdal u'mechuseh. It's separated and concealed, which means you don't know the uh, the ruling, so you need to go to the Bedin. So the Torah gives us examples between different bloods. <clears throat> certain bloods are tahor, or pure. Certain bloods are, uh, are tamer. These are referring to, let's say, uh, the discharges from a lady. So therefore, sometimes the ruling is that it's blood that uh, makes her impure. Sometimes it's not. So therefore, you have to take it to the Achamim. Ben din ledin. Let's say you have a question on a, uh, uh, a verdict. You don't know if the person is innocent or guilty. Ben nega nega. That's talking about uh, afflictions. We learned this earlier in the year about the leprosy. So sometimes the spot it's contaminated. Sometimes it's not. So if we need to bring it to the uh, to the court, uh, or for that matter, the rabbis are arguing on uh, law, and rabbis say it's pure. Certain rabbis say it's impure. Certain rabbis say innocent. Certain rabbis say guilty. So you need to go to the Supreme Court in order to get a uh, ruling on the argument from the lower courts. Uh, so the Torah says, So you shall ascend, go up, to the place. So that she learns over here, what do you mean go up? From here we learn that the Beit HaMikdash was the highest, the highest point uh, from all the places. Um, uh, we're looking at the world as round, and therefore the Beit HaMikdash uh, it's on top. That's why it says, Bekamtan, you rise up. <clears throat> and who will you go to? Ubata ila Kohanim. Thank you, sir. Have a good night. Go to the Kohanim. Kohanim are not Nevi'im. As she says, is the Kohanim come from the tribe of Nevi. Because Kohanim are from the tribe of Nevi, after all. Bela Shofet, and you'll go to the, to the judge. Guys, you have to mute your phones. You'll go to the judge 
that's in your and that's obvious. You're not going to go to a judge that lived 500 years ago. He's not around anymore. And you're not going to go to a judge that, that wasn't born yet either. So what does it mean when it says you're going to go to the judge in your days? Of course you can go to the judge in your days. So that she says, uh, uh, You have the judge that's in your days, which means that's the best you have. You can't say, oh, I remember the rabbis from 100 years ago. They were great. These rabbis today had nothing. They, you know, like here sometimes, I remember Rabbi Kassin. I remember Chambaruch. I remember Chamatlu. I these rabbis today. They don't, uh, you know, uh, uh, light a, uh, a candle. Not against these people. They're right. But what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You can't bring Chamatlu back. You can't bring uh, the Benish High back. <clears throat> You're stuck. But uh, the truth that is, the answer that I tell the people is, and, 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 and the laymen are not the laymen of yesteryear either, by the way. So everybody gets what they get. You know what I mean? The, the laymen of 100 years ago deserved the Benish high. And, and the laymen today deserve a guy like uh, a guy like me. So therefore, every every generation gets uh, gets what they're supposed to get. And therefore, you go to the judge of that time. You, don't, uh, you, you can't come along and compare. That's what it is. That's the best we have. <clears throat> now the Pasuk says, Whatever they tell you, that's it. You gotta listen. And you shall uh, be careful to listen. You know, whatever they teach you based on their rulings. Based on the Torah that they will uh, guide you and teach you. Well, the Torah tells so here the Torah tells us we're not allowed to uh, sway or turn from the not to the right <clears throat> and not to the left. Now, what does that mean, not to the right, to the left? The Torah should just say, listen to what they have to say. What's this, uh, uh, this parable over here? Don't sway to the right, to the left. So the famous comment of the uh, Dashi, that even if they tell you the right is the left and the left is the right, well, the most of they tell you the right is the right and the left is the left, you have to listen to that. Now, what does that mean? Which means even though in your mind you think they made a mistake, you think they're calling black white and white black, in your mind you think it's, it's an error. And if you cannot say, well, they blew it, therefore I'm going to do whatever I want. Even if in your understanding they are making right, left, or left, right, that's it. Whatever the Bentin said, you have to accept it. And then the Torah said, You have a guy who's a misador, um, meaning he does this sin willfully. He's not, he didn't make a mistake. He's doing the following sin willfully. What did he do? He doesn't want to listen to the Kohen. He doesn't want to listen to the judge or a shofet. So now the guy's in contempt. Uh, he does not want to listen to the uh, to the Sanhedrin. Now, who are we talking about? Who, who's not going to listen to a Sanhedrin? Only somebody that thinks that he's smart, like the Sanhedrin. And we're talking about over here a Zaken Mamre. Zaken Mamre means a scholar. We're not talking about some ignoramus that's going to, you know, question the ruling of the Betin. They won't do such a thing. We're talking about a scholar where thinks, he thinks, you know what? They botched it, and therefore I'm going to do uh, my own uh, ruling. So he goes against 
the ruling. So the Torah says he's in trouble. That person is going to be put to death, which means we give him a death sentence. Uh, and what does it say? We will eradicate the evil from Israel. And then it says, and all the people will see what happens to a person that doesn't listen uh, and subjugate himself to the Betin. And uh, clearly that will be a deterrent for them to do this again. Now that she says over here something amazing. When do they kill this scholar that's in contempt of Betin? So the Pasuk says it happens at the time where all Yisrael, now, when will all Yisrael see? I mean, all the Jewish people are not in Jerusalem. I mean, whoever's there happens to be, they'll see it. But uh, whoever's not there is not going to see it. So that she says, no, on the three holidays, everybody's in Jerusalem. And therefore, they wait to kill him on the Shalosh Regalim, when everybody's, uh, when everybody's there. So there you go, that's, uh, you know, no need to go to on a whole trip in Jerusalem, you see them execute a uh, Tamir Hakam. Talk about uh, talk about a uh, exciting trip. Shemamtinim lo Rashi says Ada Regel. They wait until the Regel. Umimitim Oto Baregel. Wow. Now that's that's an exceptional case because normally the law is of execution to execute execute them immediately the next day. You're not allowed to really delay the. Uh, the uh, execution more than overnight. But over here, they wait to the closest regal and then they take him up because they want everybody to see uh, the spectacle of why they're killing him because he didn't listen to Betin and that'll, uh, that'll surely uh, teach them a, a lesson. Now we get to the next. The next perasha is a very, very important parasha. It's the parasha of appointing a Jewish king. So Torah's going to teach us now how it's done, what are the ramifications, who qualifies, and if indeed it's a good idea at all. So it says, well, you're going to come into the land of Israel. This is more like a prediction. You're going to say, I want to have a king. Why do we want to have a king? It's coming from a bad place. We want to be like the goyim. You, you, you know, you happen to see the different forms of government. Everybody has a king. The king of Og, of Sihon, the king of Demuri, the king of Amalek, the king of uh, etc. Mitzrayim. Therefore, we want a king. So fine. You want a king? Place a king on you. The God will choose. He has to be from your people. So you're not allowed to put a, a stranger, let's say a convert from a different nation. Now we have some restrictions. So he's not allowed to have an abundance of horses. Only whatever he needs for his uh, for his chariots. Um, again, why? Why? Because 
the concern is, is that the Egyptians had the best horses, Egyptian stallions. And therefore, we don't want the king to go back to Egypt and start bringing uh, horses for his cavalry, for his uh, chariots. And uh, so therefore, he's limited in how many horses he's allowed to take. Uh, Torah does not want us to go back to Egypt. So it sounds like the law of the horses is really a, is a, is a, is a, is a protection against going back to Egypt. And the Torah doesn't want us to go back to that place anymore. So the Torah says he's not allowed to marry uh, an excess amount of wives. So the, the king is really limited. He's only allowed to marry, according to the Gemara, 18 wives. Okay, so that's, you know, that's if you're a king, you have, you have limitations on you. If you're not a king, you can marry as many wives as you want. But the king, he has to make a sacrifice. He can only take 18 wives. David uh, Melech actually had six wives. Uh, and the Pasuk says that if he wanted to, he could have had Kahena de Kahena, meaning Kahena, like another six, and another six. So that's the, uh, that's the issue. Now, what's the reason why he cannot have... Uh, too many wives. I think the issue is it's 18 mothers-in-law. That's the issue over here, but let's see what the Torah says. No, the Torah doesn't give that reason. The Torah says, the Torah says that the wives will uh, sway his heart. Like what happened to King Solomon. He married many wives and they, they got him to a certain degree. And the Pasuk says, regarding the king, that He's not allowed to have uh, a great amount of gold and silver for himself. You know, only enough uh, that he needs for his uh, to pay for the army, the soldiers, the government, and, uh, and things like that. Again, all these things are keep the, to keep the uh, uh, king humble. So when he will, uh, if he follows these laws, then the Torah says, he's worthy to sit on the throne. He follows these uh, preconditions. Now, this is an amazing law. He will write Mishneh uh, Torah, two copies of the Torah. The king has to have two Sifret Torah, uh, two scrolls. One that he keeps in his treasury, you know, in the office. It's amazing. One that he actually carries. So he writes like a small Sefer Torah, miniature, and he puts it on his arm. So he carries the Sefer Torah, which means that the Jewish king is the administrator of the Torah. He's not the king for his own honor. He's supposed to enforce the rules of, uh, of, of the Torah. Therefore, he carries it on his arm. It's like uh, you ever hear the saying, he wears his religion on his arm. This is a, literally, he puts his religion on his arm. He wears his religion. He puts the Sefer Torah there. And um, and it should be with him. And not only to be with him, but I mean, what's a book worth if you don't read it? You know, a book that was never opened really doesn't help anybody. So therefore, the Pasuk says he's got to open the book and learn from it. Read it. And his job is to keep the Torah. So the Jewish king had to be a religious man. Look, look, look at the kings. David Melech, Shalom Melech, Shaul Melech. These were the pious of the pious. 
למתינום לבבו מאחיו, lest he become arrogant, ולבלתי סור מן המצווה ימין ושמאל, and lest he sway from the מצוות, that she says, even מצווה קלה, even a minor מצווה from a prophet, the king must be diligent. למען יריך ימים על ממלכתו, he will have many years on his kingdom. And uh, you see the opposite is also true, that if he doesn't keep this, he's not going to have many years. And we see this by King Shaul, that uh, Shaul uh, transgressed a, uh, a certain a certain sin. And uh, as a result, uh, he, lost the, uh, he lost the kingdom. He didn't, he didn't listen to the, to the prophet. If you remember, we learned in Navi, Shemuel, who was the prophet at the time, said, uh, I want you to wait seven days, and then I'll come to you, and then you'll bring the korban. And the pasuk says that he waited uh, uh, seven days, and uh, he didn't keep his promise. He didn't wait to the end of the day. And then he brought the korban. And then Shemuel told him, sorry, so even the words of the prophet, technical law, doesn't matter. Shaul then lost his lost his kingdom, as the Pasuk says, your kingship will not last. So you see from here that she learns, even a small technical law from the prophet, from here we learn the law of succession, that if the king's son is worthy, so he comes first. We always hear when... Uh, they're having succession of rabbis or succession. Oh, well, what is he appointing your son for? What's going on over here? No, the Torah says, Ubanav. If the son is worthy, he, he comes first before somebody else. And that's why uh, you have David and you have Shalomon and you have the Hamam and, and so on uh, and so on and so forth. So therefore, the Ubanav, there is laws that uh, do mandate uh, how succession happens in, in the rabbinical world or king world. And, Etc. So that's that's the offering that uh, we have tonight. Uh, we learned these perashiot for the Yasarabat Simcha El Narefan Moisen again. As we're in the month of Elul, we wish our members to school the Shemim Rabot Naimot VeTovah Tovah Katev VeTehatem Amen. Back to the perasha. Shofetim. A lot of mitzvot in this week's perasha. Uh, we're chapter chapter 18, right with the uh chapter. We're learning for the question. Lo yihye la kuanim al vihim, koshevet levi, hedek benachala im Yisrael. So we know that the tribe of Levi, uh, they will not have a portion that she says in the spoils of war. So when the Jewish people go out to fight, you're from the tribe of Levi, you are uh, denied uh, any uh, benefit from the, uh, the booty of the war. Furthermore, nor does the tribe of Levi get a portion in the land. Now you might say that uh, 
that's tough luck to be a Levi. Well, the Torah says, Ishe Hashem v'nachadato yochelun. What they do get is the korbanot and the Bet HaMikdash. Uh, they get to um, benefit from different uh, gifts that the Jewish Thank people you. offer. Thank you. Thank you. Ishe Hashem, that she says, Kodshe HaMikdash. So those are the offerings that are brought into the Bet HaMikdash. So they get as well. Benachala, lo yihye, lo bekerev echav. They do not get a portion in the land of Israel. God is their nahala, ka'ashir dibed lo. Now, there is a dashi uh, here. Dashi says, what do the Kohanim and the Bihim get? Terumot u'ma'asrot. Terumot ma'asrot is percentages from the yield. So if a person has a, uh, a field and he has wheat, so he has to give 2% of the yield to the Kohanim, that's called terumah, and he has to give 10% to the Levi. That's Bluetooth on before I go on to the Zoom. So now I have to log out. And Guys, log out. you have to mute your phone. And they get Maaser Rishon. Maaser Rishon is 10%, which goes to the Levi. But an actual inheritance, meaning of the land, fine. Now she then uh, comes along and says another interpretation from the Sifri, let's say rabbinical Midrash, that they do not get an inheritance, uh, they do not get a regular inheritance, like we said in the land. It says the inheritance of five. What is the inheritance of five? She says from the Midrash, uh, what is this uh, inheritance that we're talking? When you had the land of Israel, there was two parts. There was the part in Israel proper, then you have the other side of the Jordan. That's called Me'ebera Yerden. On the other side of the Jordan, Nikret Eris Hamisha Ami. Now that's called the land of the five. The land of the five nations. Sihon, Og, that's two. And then you have Emori, Kena'ani, and Lerabot, Keni, Kenizi, Kadmoni, these are all the nations that live on the other side of the Jordan. So not only does Shevet Levin have a piece of the land in Israel, but they don't have a piece of land on the other side as well. That's what the uh, that's what the pasuk means according to this. Um, so basically, uh, only. Only the Jewish people outside of Shevet Levi uh, inherit inherit the lands. So now the Torah comes and tells us that this is going to be 
the gifts that the Kohanim get. So one of them is, is that if you slaughter an animal, you give the Kohen the, the foreleg, the hayayim is the jaw, and the stomach. That's it. So there goes half the animal. Which means uh, you have to give these things uh, to the Kohen. Now why does the Kohen get the arm, the jaw, and the stomach? Why why those specific parts of the animal go to the Kohen? So that she says, uh, there's a reason. Zeroa tachat yad. Shne'emar ba'yikach romach biyado. Do you remember Pinehas, who was one of the early Kohanim? He used his hand to take the uh, the spear, and he killed Zimri and Kozbi, those two perpetrators, committing immorality. Of course, he used his hand for the right thing, so the Kohanim now get the arm of the animal, the Zeroa. Midah keneged midah, the measure. The Hayayi. You remember Pinehas, after the plague started to ensue, so Pinehas got up and started to pray. And therefore, how does a person pray? With his mouth, his jaw. So therefore, you give the Kwanim the jaw. And why do you give him the stomach? Because if you remember when Pinehas killed Zimri and Kuzbi, where did he kill them? In the stomach. So therefore, all these things that Pinehas did would end up bringing a uh, gift to the tribes, Zerawa, uh, Lehayayin, and Keva, that's called Midah Kineged Midah. It's a, it's a measure for measure. That's, uh, that's what's going on over here. Furthermore, the Pasuk says, and we're in Pasuk Dalet, Reshit Deganecha. Reshit Deganecha is the uh, first of the grains. That she says, what is the first of the grains? Zutiruma. That's what we mentioned. Now, what is the amount of tiruma that you have to give to the Kohen? I told you 2%, but that's not really the, the amount. From the Torah, there's no amount. You can even give him one, one stalk, one grain. Now, that would be kind of uh, cheap. Imagine you have a whole pile of wheat, and you take one little stalk, that would be like giving a penny. But from the Torah, that's what it is. However, the rabbis gave three measurements. It's called Ayin Ra'a, Ayin Benunit, and Ayin Tovah. Some people have a bad eye, meaning they're stingy. And some people have mediocre, you know, they're, they're balanced. And some have a generous eye. That's called Ayin Tovah. So if you have a generous eye, you will give 140th, which is uh, like uh, 2.5%. If you have a mediocre eye, you'll give one fiftieth, which is two percent. And if you have a uh, a, a miserly eye, ein you'll give one sixtieth. So those are the three uh, the three different uh, shiuri. Furthermore, the Torah says you must give the kohen reshit gez sonecha. The person let's say has a sheep. And you shear it. So the first shearings go to the Kohen. She says, Kishata gozes sonecha bechol shana. So it's a yearly pledge. 
ten memenu reshit kohen. Now the question here is, how much of the wool do you have to give to the kohen? In the whole, the whole fleece, or is it a certain measurement? So again, the rabbis get food, and they said um, it is um, five rechelot. Five rechelot would be uh, like uh, the shoot of five small sheep. That's how much wool you have to give on a yearly basis. Um, that's uh, one opinion. Rabbi Akiva says you only have to give two. Oh, I'm sorry, five. No, he just tells you how to learn. And the shoot of five. And he learns it from the fact that it says uh, the sheep gez, that's two. And then it says sonecha, that's another two. Titen, that's another one. So that's fine. Okay, so again, uh, now the Pasuk says, and he's getting this because he serves. And the Pasuk says, because he stands and serves, and from here we learn that when the Kohen serves, he must stand. Now let's say the Levi shows up from wherever he's uh, living, and um, as she says over here, uh, we're talking about uh, a Levi that what? He comes bechol abat nafshon amakom yishir b'chad Hashem v'sheret b'shem Hashem elohav k'chol echav halvim amdim sham l'fnei Hashem chelik k'chelik yochelu debadim karav v'la'avot. So this needs to be explained over here. When it says Levi'im, you have to keep in mind, a lot of times when the Torah says the word Levi'im, it means Kohanim. Because Kohanim come from the tribe of Levi, like we learned last night. So the Pasuk says, let's say you're going to have a Levi. And she says, we're talking about a, uh, a Kohen. So what happens? We're talking about a case of a Kohen. Okay, he wants to bring a Korban. So he wants to bring a, uh, a korban. Korbenot nidbato ochobato. Let's say the Kohen has to bring his own sacrifices. I mean, Kohanim also can bring sacrifices. They don't only have to bring other people's sacrifices. They can bring their own. Now, let me just give you an introduction. There was a rotation of Kohanim that used to work in the Beit HaMikdash on a weekly basis. <clears throat> Those were called Mishmarot. There were 24 Mishmarot. So every week, a new mishmar would move in to the Beit HaMikdash, and they would be the ones that uh, officiated that week. At the end of the week, on Shabbat, the old mishmar would retire, and the new mishmar would come in. So if you have 24 mishmarot, so basically each mishmar would serve two weeks a year, at least. And then there was a couple extra weeks. Some, some mishmar would actually work three times a year. <laughs> and... What, what's the advantage of serving? Well, that week, all the sacrifices go to that mishmar. They get the skins, they get the meat. It's theirs uh, for, for the taking because they're working. Now, let's say a kohen uh, from a different mishmar comes and brings a personal korban. So the Torah is telling us in this pasuk that he gets to eat his own korban since he is a kohen. Meaning he doesn't have to fit to the uh, respective 
a mishmar that's serving in the uh, in the Beit Hamikdash. So that's what the the pasuk is telling us over here. Uh, furthermore, let's say uh, a kohen comes on the holidays. Obenay used to come to Yerushalayim uh, on the holidays. So a kohen is going to bring his personal korban on the holidays. So each kohen gets to eat his own korban. He doesn't have to give it to the uh, mishmarot that are serving. So it says over here, So that she teaches us, that uh, they get the uh, hides of the offerings, which means the uh, skins of the animals, uh, they have to skin the animal before they put the meat on the mezbeah. Who gets the skins of the animal, the hides? That's one of the gifts that they get. So that's the leather. So they can make leather uh, leather shoes from it or leather products. Uh, I don't know if the queen's going to wear a leather jacket, but the point is that they get to use those uh, hides for their own, their own benefit. And they also get the meat of the uh, sin offerings. Fine. Now, now, the Torah comes along and says over here, oh, fine. Now, ki because you are going to come into the land, asher Hashem Elohecha noten lach, lo tilmad la'asot ketu'avot ha'goyim ha'em. There was a big danger. When the Jewish people are going to go into the land of Israel, it's a culture shock, because you have all the goyim there. So you have to keep in mind uh, till now we were living in a, you know, a hermetically sealed environment. Midbar, no goyim. So everything was uh, proper. Now we're moving into Israel and you got all the goyim. So God always has to remind us, be careful not to learn from the goyim. Lord, we're not allowed to learn uh, in order to practice and learn from their ways. So that she says, but you're allowed to learn from their ways in order to teach your children how bad it is. Meaning, don't do this. The Goyim do this. It's interesting. The Yomara is telling you, you have to know the ways of the Goyim so you can be an educated parent so you know exactly what's out there. It's a very, very important lesson in parenting over here. The Torah is saying you cannot learn from the goyim to practice, but you could learn from the goyim in order to know what's out there. So a parent shouldn't be naive and uh, he doesn't know uh, you know what's going on in the world. No, you gotta know what's going on. And then you have to uh, make sure that your children are not going to, you know, in this case of where uh, knowledge is to your advantage. Uh, for a person might come and say, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know anything. Don't tell me. But if you don't know what's going on in the colleges, so you might send your uh, your kid to college uh, thinking that he's going to get an education. And then all of a sudden he comes back in eighth because you didn't know what woke is. And you didn't know what, uh, you know, all this, uh, you know, gender uh, uh, sensitivity and all this this other philosophies that they're out there. So, you know, I thought he was going to learn business. Yeah, he learned, he learned some business, I'll tell you. So the point is that the parents have to be aware of the culture uh, of the green in order that uh, 
they'll be able to. So that's an old story. So when, when the Jewish people are going to Eretz Israel, they're being told, uh, don't learn from their ways, but learn the ways. Learn the ways, but don't learn from them, but learn the ways in order to uh, let the, ch- let the children uh, know uh, what's going on. Okay, and one of the ways it says, Lo becha ma'avir beno ubito ba'esh. One of the things the uh, Goim did, there was a abodazara called Molech. They would make a bonfire, and they, from, on two sides, fire on both sides, and then they would uh, pass their child in between the, uh, the fires. Now, um, so it sounds like over here that they didn't burn their kids, but they made them walk through the fire. Now, I mean, it's obvious it cannot be so pleasant to walk between some sort of Zara. I guess the parents wanted to show how loyal they were to the Abu Zara, that they would even send their children. Uh, in between, that was so they don't want you to learn from that. Furthermore, kosem kesamim, kosem kesamim is like a magic. Uh, so that she explains, this is different uh, uh, fortune tellers that tell you different times. Though this, this is a lucky day. It's an unlucky day. Uh, they say, uh, you know, if you do something at this time. It's uh, auspicious, and Hachamim uh, come along and teach us that it's actually talking about Ochaze Enayim. Ochaze Enayim is uh, illusionists. So there's a big question over here, you know, regarding some rabbis will learn from me that magicians forbid it. The big question Chamavadiah has based on this pasuk: Can you go to a uh, to a magic show? And the rabbi really ultimately learns that, you know, you have to make an announcement in the beginning of the show. Hey, this is just is not, you know, divine or anything. This is just a slip of the hand or slide of the hand. You have to let the people know uh, initially what the, uh, you know, what, what's taking place. That nobody should make a mistake. Furthermore, you have menachesh. For example, let's say a person's eating bread and the bread falls on the floor or out of his mouth. Is, oh, that must be a bad sign. <clears throat> you know, the business is not going to succeed because the bread fell on the floor. Or let's say he's walking and a, a deer passes him and he says, oh, that's a... Well, as he was walking, his stick fell out of his hand. Uh, all that stuff over there is, uh, you know, a bl- today we would say a black cat or uh, you know, Friday the 13th or things like that. Uh, that's we don't, we don't believe in that. That's talking about a guy that uh, is a, a snake charmer or a uh, scorpions and things like that. And he brings them uh, in order to, uh, to a certain place in order to, uh, to do magic over there. And furthermore, there's a type of magician that's called an ov. And these over here, uh, I mean, it sounds a little strange, but they're able to make sounds from their armpits. Okay, and people do a lot of strange things. So he's able to get a voice that comes out of his armpit. And they're also able to resurrect the dead, not resurrect the dead, but bring the 
spirit of the dead and raise them and they talk out of his armpit. All right, that's uh, what they do. And there's another one called the Yidde'oni and that's, um, he takes a bone of an animal that's called the Yidoa animal and he puts the bone in his mouth and then the bone starts talking. I mean, so these are, these are really all type of uh, you know, diviners. The donation of Metim. Wow. Well, I mean, we're reading that she over here. It what says, was the purpose of all this? These people, what was well, the purpose? Uh, yeah, they, they're telling you the future. They give different secrets. Oh, the there's a reason, I guess, for something. <laughs> well, there were all these magicians today. Even oh. though they have... Oh, they call them magicians. Okay, yeah. I guess I have a gift for everything. I have a gift for something, so who knows? Well, <clears throat> gift that they're abusing. So they're not allowed right. to... Okay. Over here, um, uh, they take a skull. That's a Doreshul Ametim. He takes the skull of the dead guy and asks him all sorts of questions, like to have the information. I mean, yeah, yeah to know who am I going to marry? Uh, am I going to make money in business this year? Uh, should mm -hmm. I? I go to uh, this over here. This so they go to them and they, or they just get information what's going on in the upper worlds. So it's really right. not, really not. Back of fortune teller. Exactly, exactly. I'm telling mm -hmm. you this. Hey, with people all excited, I went and he looked at my uh, forehead and my palm and my this. Very simple. If you want to know if it's legitimate or not, did they ask you for money? If they ask you for money, then you know already it's not L'shem Shemayim. And did they tell you keep Shabbat? Did they tell you eat kosher? No, they didn't tell you any of that. They just told you, give me $100 and I'll tell you, uh, you know, whether, if it's going to rain tomorrow, what the weather's going to be, or whether you should go to this place or not. How come they didn't tell you something substantial? The guy's in Mechadil Shabbat, he's not careful in Kashrut. They don't care about that. They just want to get paid and they want to give you, and then you come back and say, well, but he was right. Came true. Yeah, but I'd say that there's no power. There's definitely a power that you could tap into. But the main pasuk of the parashat we're going to end up tonight, tamim im You should go walk with God and look at him and trust in him. Uh, and whatever happens, you accept. Tamim which means wholeheartedly. You're not looking to know Hashem wanted us to know the future. He, he tell us the future. You don't, you don't need to know this. Tamim Tiyir. It was a story of uh, Rabbi Raful, may live and be well. Uh, he was on a plane that was hijacked many years ago. They flew it. Uh, the Arabs, the Palestinians flew it to Jordan. And him and his brother, they were on the plane. They were there for a while. They were victims of a hijacking. And one of these, uh, you know, fortune tellers uh, told, I think, Rabbi Raful, before he went, that plane's going to get hijacked. And they asked him, uh, after the, it happened, he said, if the guy would tell me again that it would be hijacked, I would go on the plane anyway. 
You know, what's God do? It's not my business. This is, I, I don't live according to, you know, people telling me, you know, what's going to be. Hashem runs the world. So that's a, a very, very important lesson, especially Rabbi Hillel wrote a book. It's called Faith and Folly. In Hebrew, and he's very, very against using uh, Kabbalistic uh, magic. It's called Kabbalah Ma'asit. There were some rabbis who obviously were experts who knew what to do, but today, you know, any guy goes on YouTube and gets the recipe and starts using names of God and, you know, Kabbalah and different things, and they start, uh, you know, selling it and abusing it. So really it's not... Uh, the great Kabbalists of today, they study it and they teach it, meaning the lessons, but they don't use practical, uh, you know, Kabbalah in order to, you know, do different, uh, serve them and make their life, uh, you know, easier, whatever it is. All right, so that's the Pasuk. Tamim Tihem Hashem Elohecha. Stop here. Rashidema, Chaya Sarah, Bat Simcha. Thank you. Can I ask you a small question, Rabbi? How do you know? Um, so where did the Levine or the Kohanim live? So if each Shebet has their own part in Eretz Israel, where did the Levine live? Great question. They lived with the people. Because every tribe gave them a little portion in, t- in, the, in their, uh, you know, in their, their section. That... Uh, partition a little area for the Levine and uh-huh. 48 cities that belong to Bnei Israel, but the Levine also had access to them as well. I see. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Up to Hamishi. So that is Perik. Let's just get it. Ordering it correctly. That's Perik. Uh, 18, and we're going to start from Pasuk 14. So we learned last night about the Isur, uh, the prohibition against going after uh, sorcery, magic, uh, fortune tellers, and things like that. We said, Tamim Hashem one should have uh, total wholeheartedness with Hashem and not uh, seek uh, to know the future or use different types of black magic or different forces in order to get uh, guidance. Uh, and the Pasuk tells us tonight that that is indeed the way of the Goyim, that they go after these type of practices. But uh, indeed, uh, God uh, says that is not so, meaning not to listen to Me'onenim uh, and Kosemim. As a matter of fact, uh, the Pasuk says, Exactly. If a person wants to understand and get his information from a, a pure 
a legitimate source, so then you have to go to God. Now, where does God communicate his, uh, his So that she says two places. Either you go to a prophet, or the Jewish prophet, so he's connected, or you go to the Urim Betumim, which was the breastplate that the Kohen Gadol would wear, and God would communicate through the stones. And the Pasuk then says, Navi mekidbecha me'achecha kamoni yakimdecha shemelohecha elav tishma'un. So a prophet from your midst, uh, from your brothers, that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu says, like me, uh, so him you should listen to. So that she says uh, that just like I am from, uh, uh, from your brothers, I'm from your midst, uh, so too you should establish uh, future prophets in my stead, and so too from prophet to prophet. So those are legitimate prophets. So if you remember when B'nai Sargat Sinai, uh, they told Moshe Rabbeinu that they cannot tolerate the voice of God. It was too powerful for them. So they said uh, to Moshe, we cannot continue to hear the uh, voice of Hashem and the fire. Uh, we don't want to die. So Hashem told me, they have spoken uh, you know, correctly. And And I will uh, appoint prophets in their midst like you. And instead of communicating to the people directly, which they can't tolerate, so I will communicate through the mouth of the prophet. So uh, that is the, the true prophet. However, the Torah says there are other type of prophets uh, that are false. Now, the Torah says, what if a person does not listen to the prophet, the legitimate prophet? He doesn't listen. So the Torah says, Or let's say the prophet uh, is pontificating things that he didn't hear from God. He's making up stuff. So the Torah says very clearly, Umet Hanaviyahu. So the Torah says that there is a punishment of uh, of false prophets, and the punishment is Henik. Henik is death by strangulation. So that's um, uh, two different, uh, three different examples. One example would be a prophet that prophesies something. He didn't hear. I mean, something that was not told to him. And uh, there's another one that a prophet that uh, prophesies in the name of Abu Dazarah, the name of idolatry, and one who suppresses his prophecy, which is an interesting law that once God gives a prophecy to give over, the prophet does not have a right to suppress it. He has to actually 
uh, give it over. Uh, and the Torah says also that somebody that violates the word of a prophet, then, or let's say he violates his own prophecy, so then the punishment is mitabi de shamayi. God will take care of that person. That's death by heaven. And that's what it means in the Pasuk, Anuchi Edrosh Me'imo. The prophet that, uh, well, the person that does not listen to the prophet, uh, so he gets punished by Hashem. But the prophet himself was the false prophet. His punishment is by uh, strangulation. And you might ask, you know, you might come along and say in the future, uh, for example, there's going to be false prophets that she gives us a false prophet's name. His name was Hananiah ben Azur. And Hananiah ben Azur was a false prophet. And he came along and he made a prophecy. And he said that um, the vessels of Hashem's house are going to be turned quickly from Babylon. That means the Beit HaMikdash will be rebuilt and the Babylonian exile will come to an end. And the prophet Yirmiyahu was screaming and crying out uh, by, about the pillars. Uh, and he was saying that, um, on the contrary, uh, the Jewish people are going to uh, continue to go to Galut. Uh, so therefore, uh, Hananiah was saying one prophecy and Yirmiyah, yet another. So therefore, how are you going to know who exactly is the real prophet when you have a, a contradiction uh, between the, the prophets? So he says, If a prophet prophesizes using the name of Hashem, and then his words do not uh, materialize. Uh, so, for example, he says, uh, you know, such and such a thing is going to befall on you. Uh, and then you see that it uh, didn't happen. So then already you know that uh, you could kill that prophecy, that prophet. Now, V'im uh, Tomar, she asks, Zo Only a person that prophesizes a future event so you'll know if he's a false prophet if it doesn't come true. However, um, let's say he prophesizes to do something. Now God came to me last night and said, I should tell the people to do such and such a thing. So how, how are you going to know if he's a false prophet or not? Which means there's a way to identify a false prophet that gives you a, uh, a prediction. And the prediction doesn't come true. So then you know already the guy's a, a fake. But let's say he doesn't give you a prediction. He just says, in the name of God, he said to do uh, such and such. So how are, go how are you going to know if he's legitimate or not? So that she tells us a very important uh, litmus test. And that is, So we have a rule. If the prophet comes along and tells us to make a sin. So then automatically you know that he cannot be legitimate because God uh, will not change the Torah. So let's say a prophet comes and says, 
you know, God appeared to me and said that you have to eat, uh, you know, pork. And it's a mitzvah. Well, you know, that can't be true. And God's not going to change the Torah, even through a, a prop. So that, that's how you'll know that he's not telling the truth. But now that she says a very big chedush, unless he's what's called a, a mumheh, unless he is a uh, tried and tested prophet, like Eliyahu Hanavi. So everybody knows already Eliyahu Hanavi has a standing. Eliyahu Hanavi has a reputation as a true prophet. And uh, and this is a big chedush. A true prophet, uh, from time to time, if he seems, if he deems it necessary, uh, you know, if the time uh, is need, you know, the time calls for it, or in order to make a offense, is allowed to uh, prophesize to the people even something that generally is forbidden. The classic example of that is Eliyahu Navi. So Eliyahu Navi lived at a time where you can only bring sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash. And if you remember, we learned earlier in these classes that once you bring a korban in the Beit HaMikdash, you're not allowed to bring a korban on a bama. A bama is a private altar. So what happened? It was in Eliyahu Navi's time, and there were these false prophets. They were called the prophets of the Baal. And they were very, very uh, enticing, and the people were going after them. And Eliyahu Hanavi wanted to show that they're, they're forgers, they're fakers. So what did he do? He called the great assembly to Mount Carmel, it's next to Haifa. And uh, all the prophets, the false prophets met at this convention, as well as the Jewish people. And Eliyahu Hanavi commanded the people to make two altars, two mizbeah. One, the Nevi'eh HaBa'al will bring their sacrifice on, and one, Eliyahu Navi will bring his. And ultimately, a fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice of Eliyahu Navi. And that's how everybody knew that God actually was the true God. They all got up and they said in a resounding sound, Adonai Hu Elohim, Adonai Hu Elohim. So Eliyahu Navi definitely prove this point, but let's go back. He told them to do something that was forbidden. I mean, you're not allowed to bring a korban on a So how did get away with that? He killed them. They should have said, hey, we know that that's forbidden. How could you come along and tell us to do something that's forbidden? And the answer is that Eliyahu Navi is a tried and tested prophet. And if Eliyahu Navi felt that he needs to do something out of the ordinary in order to impress upon the people that they shouldn't get drawn after Nebiya Habal. So that's called Et La Asot La Hashem. It was a it was a time that called for God uh, that needed uh, a special attention. Uh, now that's only because Eliyahu Navi was known already to be a true prophet. But let's say nobody knew who Eliyahu Navi was. And it's his, it's his, it's his inaugural prophecy. It was his first prophecy that he ever made. And he said, all right, Abutai, we're going to go to Hala Karmel and take a Bama and bring Korbanot. Then we would kill him. Not inaugurate your prophecy with, a, with an exception. 
this is after many years of Eliyahu Navi showing the people that he is true. So then already he has a right uh, once in a while to suspend to suspend the law. That's a, that's a very, very important law to remember that the same, the same uh, uh, qualification that we render a prophet false, that same qualification will not render a true prophet guilty. Uh, that means if a regular false prophet gets up and says, bring a korban on a bama, punishable by strangulation. Uh, but Yaw Navi gets up and says the same thing. Say, no, that's a Yaw Navi. He's, uh, you know, he's legit, and therefore he has the right, he has that license. Now, don't try this at home. Not everybody, uh, we don't have prophets today. So if you, for the classic example, uh, when, let's say, the prophets of foreign religions came along, and they said, oh, I had a dream, and God came to me in a prophecy, and he said that the Old Testament is passé, and the Jews are not the chosen people anymore, and now he's, uh, God is exchanging the Jews for a, a new nation with a New Testament. Now, the one that gave that prophecy was not a tried and proven prophet. Uh, so therefore, he's coming to subvert and, and, and make a, a change to the existing law. In that case over there, that's false prophecy. And therefore, he doesn't have a right to, uh, to, 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 to do that. Now, it doesn't mean that Eliyahu Navi every day was making exceptions. You only do it from time to time when it, it's, uh, it's needed. Like the Gemara says in one place that uh, at the time of the Greeks, the rabbis instituted uh, uh, certain laws in order to preserve Shemirat Shabbat. What happened? One time there was a man that was riding a horse on Shabbat through the streets of Jerusalem. And the rabbis took him and they executed him for doing that. Now, even though according to Jewish law, while it's forbidden to ride a horse on Shabbat, there's no death penalty for that. As a matter of fact, riding a horse on Shabbat is only forbidden from the rabbis. The rabbis were worried that you might pull a branch off a tree and use it to hit the animal. So where did the rabbis come along now and uh, administer a, a death penalty to somebody who's riding on a horse? The explanation is, Migdar Milta. They saw that the people were being drawn after desecration of Shabbat. So therefore they had to penalize even uh, a misdemeanor, you know, uh, a small crime and make it into a federal case. So the people will get, you know, shaken up and scared and, you know, what have you. And that's... Uh, that's the example over here that we're talking about. Now, the Pasuk does say, uh, in conclusion of this chapter, Lo tagur you should not fear him. Um, which means, uh, listen, if somebody's coming along and claiming himself as a prophet, you might be afraid of him to execute him. You, know, you might say, well, this guy's got spiritual powers. How am I going to execute him? He might take revenge on me or something uh, of that sort. So the Torah tells us clearly, Lo tagur you should not fear him, and therefore we should not hold ourselves back from uh, you know, arguing in the court that he's guilty, and you shouldn't be fearful uh, of being punished because of him. 
God says, don't worry, I'll protect you. If you get rid of the false prophets, that'll be something that will be, uh, you know, to your, uh, to your credit. Now, if you just want to go through quickly uh, some, uh, some Jewish history, uh, which I think is worth, worth our while. Uh, if you remember uh, when the Jewish people were in the Midbar, so we didn't build the Mishkan until the second year. So the first year that we were in the Midbar, Bamot were permissible. Bamot are these private, private altars. Because again, no Mishkan, you can build these private altars. Now, in the Midbar, we erected the Mishkan in year two, and it lasted for 39 years. And for those 39 years, back to being forbidden, Bamot. And then uh, the Mishkan, when we came into Israel, the times of Yeshua, they erected the Mishkan in a city called Gilgal. So at that time over there, uh, even though uh, there was a uh, Mishkan over there, but it was a temporary Mishkan, and Bamot was still permitted. So that's an exception. That's the case where we had a Mishkan. But since hey. it was temporary, the Bamot were permitted. Now, after Gilgal, we erected the Mishkan in a city called Shiloh. And the Mishkan in Shiloh lasted for 369 years. And at that point, Bamot became forbidden. And then uh, the Mishkan moved to two cities, one Nov, and then give on for a total of 57 years. And that was a temporary time. And therefore, Bamot were permitted. Once the Beit HaMikdash was erected, the first Beit HaMikdash, Bamot are then forbidden uh, forever. And that's why today we don't have Bamot. You know, why don't we just go uh, build a, uh, a Bama in our backyard and bring Korbanot? We can't. Once the Beit HaMikdash was erected, uh, that is... Uh, that is off the table. All right, so that's basically the uh, the lesson of tonight, Perush uh, Rashi. Stop over here. We learn these lessons. We're here. I'm in the car, so maybe the video is not so good. I do have to give a shoot at 10.15 in the Kolel. So... We'll just give it from here. Uh, we are going to start. We're going to start from Shishi. So that's going to be uh, chapter 19, Pasuk uh, 14. Okay, let's read. Lotasi Gevul Reacha. We're learning for Hayasara Batsum Harifu Ashadama. So let me explain what we're talking about over here. In Eretz Israel, everybody received property. They received an, uh, an inheritance, a land. So you're not allowed to change the, uh, the borders. That's stealing. For example, you take the fence and you move it a couple of feet further out. Basically, you're stealing a couple of feet or yards of your friend's field. So that's the Isud of Lotasig. Lotasig literally means um, uh, do not move back. Like the Pasuk says, Nasogu Ahod. 
So the Torah is coming to tell you that you have to respect the boundaries. Uh, now, this is not only a sin in Eris Israel, as she points out. It's a sin anyway. We could do this in uh, Brooklyn or Deal. Somebody, you know, building a house and he needs a couple extra feet for his driveway. So, he, you know, his neighbor doesn't realize it. He comes along and he moves the line a little. So that's that's clearly uh, a sin. That's the sin of of stealing. It's called Lotik Zol. But Rashid points out that in Eretz Israel, if you do it, there's an additional sin. And that additional sin is called Lotasig. So therefore, if you do it in outside of Israel, Lotik Zol, don't steal. If you do it in Israel, like we said, there's an additional sin, and that'll be Lotik Zol and Lotasig. That's the first mitzvah we learned tonight. Second mitzvah. Lo yakum edehad beish lechol avon ulchol hata bechol chet asher yecheta. In Jewish law, uh, in order to convict somebody, you need to have two witnesses. Whether it's in a capital punishment case or it's in a monetary case, the Torah says lo yakum edehad beish. You know, one witness is um, is not enough. You need two. Now, one witness, however, will accomplish something. What does he accomplish? So let's say uh, Reuven comes in and says uh, to Shimon, you owe me a hundred bucks. And Shimon says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't owe you anything. Okay, so it's his word against his word. There's no witnesses. So at that point, uh, he doesn't have to pay. But let's say that Uvin brings one witness and one witness comes along and says, yeah, uh, Shimon owes him the money. So that one witness does something. It causes Shimon now to need to make a shivua, a swear. Now he's got to swear that he doesn't owe the money, which means if there was no witnesses at all, jump in the lake. Uh, I, you say I owe you money. I say I don't. You have no witnesses to prove it. Have a good day. If two witnesses come along and say the money is owed, then that's it. You got to pay. Nothing stronger than two witnesses. But as she says, if there's only one witness that comes, the one witness, although cannot make Shimon pay, but now it forces a shivua. It forces Shimon to make a swear. And basically, he has to swear that he didn't, uh, uh, that he doesn't owe any money. So that's the law of Edehat. So the Torah says that uh, by the word or the mouths of two witnesses, that's uh, what stands in court. And as she points out, from the mouths of the witnesses, from here we learn, we do not accept in Jewish court written testimony. Now, let's say the witness can't show up for whatever reason. So they, you know, they give a signed affidavit with a signature of his testimony. That, I don't know the, the American law that might be accepted, but in Jewish law, we have to hear it from the mouths of the witnesses. Furthermore, uh, we're not allowed to hear it from a translator. So we have to hear it from the witnesses' mouths themselves. That's why the judges actually have to be fluent in many languages. Because let's say the guy comes in uh, the witnesses come in and they speak uh, you know, Swahili. Uh, so then you, you're going to need a translator for that. And that's not good. 
because now the witness, the judges are hearing it from the translator. So therefore, the judges must be fluent in the language of the uh, in the language of the witnesses. Now, we're talking about a case over here that a witness comes into Betin, or two witnesses come into Betin, La'anot Bosara. This is talking about where it is a total fabrication. So you have two witnesses here that are lying. Now, how do we know that they're lying? So the Torah says, So you'll have uh, the two people, um, and Rashi comes along and says, uh, from here, we learn that witnesses can only be men. It says, no offense to the ladies. No offense to the ladies, but only men are kosher in a, in a, in a court of Jewish law to be witnesses. It's nothing to do with the, uh, you know, with the aptitude of a lady or her accuracy or things like that. Well, maybe it does. But the point is, uh, ladies are not uh, accepted <clears throat> as, uh, as witnesses. The Pazuk says, <coughs> it is the men. And we also learn from here that witnesses must stand uh, in the courtroom when they give their testimony. So there's rules over here. Now, what's going to happen? We're talking about the very fascinating case. Uh, first of all, the Pasuk says, they, the witnesses stand in front of God. That means the courtroom is considered a um, a um, it's a religious institution. Um, I know in uh, in government, let's say in America, the courts are separate from God. You know, the separation of church and state. But in Jewish law, the court actually is a function of of the religion because it's enforcing Torah law, and the Gemara says that God actually. Uh, is in the courtroom. Uh, so therefore, uh, the Torah refers to it as when you're in court, you're in front of God. Uh, and it says, and you will stand in front of the uh, the judges of your time. And I think we learned this the other day. Uh, you only have the judges of your time, which means, uh, you know, we, we, can't go back, we can't go back 100 years and get the Benish high. So we have to settle for the, you know, for the rabbis that we have. You know, you, you get what you deserve. And finally, the Torah comes along and says that, let's say two witnesses come and testify. I'll give you an example. Uh, two witnesses come and testify, and they say, Uven, you know, murdered uh, in Chicago on uh, Tuesday at 9 a.m. And all of a sudden, two other witnesses come along and say, how could you testify uh, that Reuven killed uh, in Chicago on Tuesday, you were with us in New York. You witnesses were us in New York. So you, you, were not even, you were not in the place of the crime. So therefore the second witnesses are um, invalidating the first witnesses. This law is called the law of Edim Zomimim. Edim Zomimim. And the Torah will investigate the second witnesses to make sure that they're telling the truth. And if indeed uh, the second witnesses are proven to be telling the truth, so the first witnesses not only are invalidated uh, because they're lying, but we do to the witnesses what they were trying to do to the 
to the man that they testified against. Meaning, they were testifying that Uven is a murderer. So what were they trying to do? They were trying to get Uven killed. Because if somebody murders, he's punished by capital punishment. So they tried to kill an innocent man. So what they were trying to do to the Uven is done to them. So we take these two witnesses and we kill them. Or for that matter, whatever they were trying to do. If they were trying to obligate the Uven money, and then they were found to be uh, false, so then the first two witnesses have to pay money. If they were trying to uh, obligate uh, lashes, let's say, to the Uven, so if they were found guilty, so then they have to get lashes themselves. But it's only through this format called Edim Zumimim, where the second witnesses put them in a different place. They say, how could you have seen the crime? You were with us on that day at a different place. And the, the Torah says that um, we do to them what they try to do to the brother. And she says a big shidush over here that it's only when they try to do it. But if they actually succeeded, then we don't punish the witnesses. I know that sounds quite strange, but I'll say it again. If the witnesses attempted to convict the Uven, but they weren't successful, but the fact that they attempted to do it, they attempted, and now they were proven false, so they get the punishment that they wanted to give the Uven. But let's say... The first two witnesses testified, Betin accepted it, and they actually killed Reuven. Betin killed Reuven. Now two other witnesses came along and sh showed us that they were false, the first two witnesses. So now the Torah says, we don't kill the witnesses. Only when it was an attempt, but not when they actually succeeded. And I know that sounds uh, counterintuitive. If you're punishing them for trying, so certainly we should punish them for actually succeeding. It's a very, very good question. And one of the answers to that is, is that when they committed such a great crime uh, of actually killing an innocent, having an innocent person killed, so therefore we're not going to give them kapara in this world by killing them. We're going to wait for God to give them a bigger punishment in Olam Abba. You have to always remember that the punishment that the person gets in this world, uh, it ultimately brings them uh, kapara. It's, it's an atonement. So therefore... This person does not deserve atonement because he's so so guilty. So therefore, God will settle up with him uh, in the next world. And finally, the Torah says, um, we do to the witnesses what they were trying to do to their brother. And the Gemara learns to their brother and not their sister. From here we learn, let's say they were testifying on a daughter of a Kohen. And they said, this daughter of the Kohen committed adultery. She was, she was engaged and uh, she, uh, she committed adultery as an engaged woman. And the Torah says that the punishment of a daughter of a Kohen is death by fire. Uh, and now these two witnesses were proven uh, false. We don't punish the witnesses by fire. We only punish them the sentence that they were trying to give the man, not the lady. And the man, in that case, is punishable by strangulation. The man that killed, committed the adultery with the daughter of the Kohen. So we do to the Zomimim, what they were trying to do to the brother, to the man, not to the sister. So those are some of the some of the laws. Uh, we'll stop over here. We'll take a short night. Original custom was 15 minutes. We're doing it. It's the Fuash Shilema for Hayasara Batsamha. And Narafarana, wish our members Shabbat Shalom. Like I said, we're in Elul, so we can wish all of you as well. The school is Shanim Rabot.
שנה טובה, מבורכת, we'll pick up next week.